The dissatisfied customer becomes a terrorist against your company. They can go on the social network today and destroy you. That's Horst Schulze, co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. I made it very clear. The only one that can make a decision that a guest is a jerk is me. That's one thing I cannot empower. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with Horst Schultze to discuss how to be truly excellent in a world of compromise, how to empower and inspire your team, and why anticipating and exceeding your customers' expectations will take you to the top. I know who our customer was. The average age was only 44 years old. I knew they may travel another 30 years. They had the potential of spending $200,000 by themselves lifetime with us. Why wouldn't I move heaven or to keep them? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Horst Schultze is the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. He's also the founder of the Capella Hotel Group and the best-selling author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. While most business leaders we speak with on this podcast tend to start their professional careers on a very different path than the ones they're on now, Horst always envisioned the life in hospitality. Nobody wanted to work in that, that was unknown because in a village we didn't have a hotel. I never see been in a hotel. It was after the war years when you didn't travel anyway. So for some reason, when I was 11 years old, I went to my parents and said, I want to work in the hotel business. Nobody knows where I came from. I must have read something or whatever. And I kept on insisting on it. In fact, there was opposition to it. My parents were nearly embarrassed. That's not what you did at that time in the hotel, working in a hotel. You went into a technical shop. It would have been like a guard to say that I'm an engineer. Whoa, now that's something or a, or even a carpenter or a roofer would have been respectable, but not hotel, but I wanted it. So my parents found a job eventually when I was 14 in a hotel that was unfortunately 100 kilometers away from our home, but it was the best hotel in the region. So I left home when I was 14 to work in that hotel. And when you, when you began, I believe your first job, you were cleaning ashtrays, but there was somebody that you worked with that made a huge impression on you that I think you took away many principles from. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, formative, life formative. Uh, I arrived at the first day and met 
who was the maitre that's like here you would call him food and beverage director of the hotel. And he spoke to me and said, so tomorrow you come to work the first day, you arrive here at seven o'clock, but don't come to work. Come to work to create excellence in what you're doing. Now, that went over my head when I was 14. I, how, what is so excellent about washing dishes and so on? But the Medudi was a gentleman, ultimate gentleman of excellence. And so I slowly learned what he meant with excellence. He would have never entered a restaurant without looking perfect. He was a gentleman. And in everything he did, he intended to do the very best by what he was doing. Once a week, by the way, I went to hotel school, which is normal German upbringing with all the kids from the region. And after two years, we were asked to write an essay as to what we now feel about the hotel business. And I went back to work in a restaurant and I saw something I have seen many times, but I never internalized it. The Mater D approached a table that night and I could see the guests were proud that he came to them. Now that was the opposite of what I had learned. I had learned they are ladies and gentlemen, all our guests, and we are servants. But there was a change here and I contemplated it. And the first time I realized that night when as I want to write my essay, that Mater D defined himself to everybody as somebody exceptional. And I realized for the first time I can define myself. This gentleman had huge impact on me. And I wrote my essay and I named it, We Are Ladies and Gentlemen, Serving Ladies and Gentlemen. Unless we define ourselves as anything less, but if we define ourselves as excellent, we are at the same time defining ourselves as ladies and gentlemen, just like the ones that sit in the restaurant. And that was with me. In fact, when I started Red Skull Hotel Company, I made that the motto of the company, we are ladies and gentlemen. We're not servants. We are ladies and gentlemen, serving with excellence, ladies and gentlemen. We are become servants if we're not excellent in what we're doing. Now, the title of the book is Excellence Wins, and I know that that was very intentional. It's not titled Mediocrity Wins. I'm just curious, why why make the position on really just becoming the best in the world? Because I'm sure that most wouldn't like to be. I mean, there'd probably be few people opposed to being truly excellent, and yet most are not. Yeah. In fact, I talked to people who said, we are a good average. What is average? Average is the bottom of gold and top of bed. Why would you not make a decision to be truly excellent in your particular business. That was the vision of the company. I, I left a great job because I could create that vision for this new company, which eventually was called Ritz Carlton. But I questioned myself at the same time, and that's a key leadership element. What is your vision for your company? And what is good for all concerned, for the investor, for the employees, for the customer? for society as a whole. That is your responsibility as a leader to create something that is good for all concerned. And I'm clearly defined, determined, that creating the best hotel company in the world would be good, excellent for all concerned. And in that moment, I could not compromise anymore. In that moment when I knew I come to work, I could not compromise for myself, nor for any individual or any situation. 
that effort to become the best in the world because I knew it would be great service, great for all concerned. I know you talk about that no matter what business you're in, the three things that are key to achieving excellence are people, systems, and service. But I'm curious, how would you rank those if you had to rank them one, two, and three? <laughs> well, you cannot do it with either one. I mean, if you imagine you look at your left and you see a lot of people there, those are your potential customers and customers. And on the right, there are a lot of people too. Those are your employees. So no matter what business you're in, you have to understand what the customer expects from your product. You have to now make sure that the employee totally understands what that customer wants from you. And then as managers, you create systems, processes, measurements, controls to make sure that delivery happens. Now, leadership in turn is a situation where the leader creates an environment in which the employee actually wants to do that. So it's people and people and product. They come together for the benefit of the customer. And the final benefit, of course, for your investors and for all concerned. You cannot eliminate one of them. That's possible. But in the delivery, the most important thing, by the way, is not the product itself. It's the service. The product has to be excellent. But the real driver of customer loyalty is the service delivery. And there's something, in fact, very fascinating that we know that 70% of the market would be willing to pay more for the same product if the service is excellent. But in other words, if you create a product and your competitor creates the same product, the customer is willing to pay more for your product if you give them good service. That's a relationship element. Relationship a service is the moment you make contact with that customer and pay attention to the customer. So service is essential in that, in that equation. If I want to have loyal customers. One of the most standout ways that Horst empowered his team at the Ritz-Carlton was to give each employee a $2,000 allowance towards making any and every guest's experience the best it could be. I asked him to elaborate on his decision to institute the policy and to speak to the results that followed. I can easily elaborate because I will never forget it. When I started, I was sued by owners, hotel owners. Mind you, hotel companies don't own hotels. They manage hotels for hotel owners. So Ritz-Carlton, we didn't own the hotels. We managed them. And now I come with a policy where empower, I empowered our employees to be able to make a decision up to $2,000, no matter what employees is. I empower them to make a decision up to $2,000 if there is a problem that a guest experiences, but to keep the problem. You see, a great company really does four things. A truly great organization concentrates, number one, of keeping the customers that you have. Number one. And number two, you find new ones. Number three, you get as much money as you can from the customer. Without losing them, that means you're giving value. And number four, you do it all efficiently. That's a great company. Now, if I want to keep that customer, if that's number one, and it should be, then I have to move heaven and earth to keep them, actually. Then I have to make sure that I empower my employees to make sure that I have loyal customers. We have to understand here, 
there are three types of customers out there. There's the dissatisfied customer. The dissatisfied customer is, becomes a terrorist against your company. They can go on the on, on social networking today and destroy you. You don't want that. Number two, you, you have the satisfied customers. They're not yours. They're satisfied with their product, but they may go next door if there's a better offering. And then there is the loyal customer. You don't want to lose them. So what if a customer has a problem and may become a terrorist? If I have an employee who has is empowered up to $2,000, let's say it is the bus boy in the morning in a hotel. You can refer it in your business as you want. And the guest comes to in the morning for breakfast. And the bus boy says, good morning, sir. I hope you have a nice day. And the guest says, no, I didn't. There was a lot of noise in the corridor and my TV didn't work. The bus boy now is empowered to make sure that customer, we are not going to lose that customer. The bus boy now can say, please forgive me, sir. In fact, that's all of our employees were certified to do it that way. Please forgive me, sir. In fact, I feel so bad I will buy a breakfast. This customer who may have become a terrorist now becomes an ambassador. To me, that's worth a lot of money. The $2,000 were given only once by an incident that I describe in my book. Nobody ever gave $2,000. We sent a fruit basket to the room. We, we sent some cookies to the room. We bought a glass of wine or bought breakfast. And all that are a few dollars to keep a loyal customer. Now, I also knew, frankly, I know who our customer was. The average age was only 44 years old. I knew they may travel another 30 years. They had the potential of spending $200,000 by themselves lifetime with us. Why wouldn't I move heaven and earth to keep them? It, when, when I did it, that created like a nuclear explosion. Everybody said, are you crazy? My wife's presence. I said, no, I want to keep the customer. But of course, we then went to teaching our employees, how they handle it. We certified each employee how to handle, do problem resolution. And I believe with this policy, it actually led to incredible acts that really drove customer loyalty. I remember you, you stated one, at one point, if you could share the story of like the couple that was on their honeymoon in, uh, in Cancun. That was a fun story because I, I enjoyed that personally because the, the, sure enough, the groom lost his ring on the beach the first day he went there. Now you can imagine. Everybody was digging. The more you dig for it, the whole beach was looking for it. The more you dig, you can, the more it gets lost. You can also imagine the tears. But after beach time, the four beach attendants, they didn't have to ask. They went and bought four metal detectors and found the ring. Now, they spent $500. And so what? We got a million, millions of worth of advertising promotions out of it. What would have happened without the empowerment? They would have gone and asked permission to the channel manager. The channel manager would have said, we, we won't find it anyway. Or, okay, buy one metal detector. And they wouldn't have found it. <laughs> they were empowered to make their decision immediately after. Run. And before the night break, they found the ring. And the next morning, the couple found it on their table for breakfast. And the joy and the, uh, the excitement... He called every newspaper and he said, we couldn't have bought that kind of advertising. So there's so many beautiful stories what happened uh, because of this empowerment. You see, 
we taught problem resolution. It's very simple. The first thing we taught is listen if the guests have a problem. Listen, attentive. Don't look the other way when you see something, but look them in the eye and listen. Show empathy next. Apologize next. You own the complaint if you get it, even if it wasn't your area. Please forgive me. And next, make amends. And next, delight. Delight, buying the breakfast, sending fruit bars. We delight them, saying sorry. A busboy saying sorry and saying, please forgive me. And buying breakfast, that guest will be over, overwhelmed. And instead of becoming terrorists, they become an ambassador. And that's the idea. The idea is keep every customer. That it, you, you cannot afford anymore today to have customers go out there and go into social networking and destroy you. You are not seeing the employees, the customer, your employees do. So you have to empower them. Now, in times when you know all businesses experience at some point customer complaints, what do you recommend for people to do or perhaps not do when they're facing a customer complaint? Yeah, here's the fascinating thing. Of the complaints, we know that this is scientific studies, okay? 96% of people who complain, all they want to do is get rid of their frustration. So you cannot say, this is not my area, or I will tell them. The guests want to unload. And if you accept the complaint by saying, listen careful and empathize, and then say, I am sorry. Please forgive me. They're rid of their frustration. At that point, they nearly become embarrassed that they even complain. There are only 3%, a little bit over 3% of the customers where generally they actually amends have to be made. Something happened, there's something lost, you, you, have to, you have to take care of it. And then there is a very fraction of complaints that we call the, the jerk factor. That guest just wants something, that customer wants something. That exists, but it is totally, totally rare. So we have to accept that. So we have to teach our employees how to handle that complaint. Again, accept it. Listen careful. Say sorry. And 96% of customers feel bad that they even complained. I want to go deeper into, as you mentioned, the jerk factor. What do you do when you've tried everything? You've tried everything to make it right. And for whatever reason, you still just can't please this person. Let me give you and tell the story. I think I think in the book uh, there was a complaint in our hotel in Atlanta and Bucket at the time. I made it very clear: the only one that can make a decision that a guest is a jerk is me. That's one thing I cannot empower. Otherwise, every complaint said, "What well, was the guest's fault? Was not my fault?" Uh, you, you know, you cannot empower that. So I made it very clear: the guest is right always. Only I can decide if they were not right. So before we throw a guest out of the hotel, for example, because it's a bad situation, I will do that. And sure enough, there was a situation in Bucket where the general manager called me and said, Horst, there is a guest here. It's just impossible. I know you don't want us to do it, say that, but he is a total jerk. He comes in my office every morning. He's here a week already. Every morning come to my office and, and lies with complaints to me. Not only that, he pinched a couple of the ladies up in the club level. Wow, okay, now we have a situation. There are legal issues now involved and so on. I said, all right, here's what you do. You double lock the door. 
And when he comes back, and you make it very clear, we at Ritz-Carlton, we are here to please every customer, including you. So far, we couldn't do it. Now, what we're going to try another way. We have a reservation in another hotel for you. We have the limousine waiting. You have to move out. We double lockdown, we come in. So, and I know they would find me then. I know the lawsuit complaints always came to me. And of course, sure enough, he called me and said, I will own your company. I will sue you. You would throw me out of hotel. Yes, illegal. And I'm, I told him, we are here only to help you because we couldn't please you. We want to, we want to please you. And he uh, kept on uh, threatening with lawsuit. And I said, now, wait a second. I will show up in the courtroom with the two ladies that you pinched. So you move ahead. He never sued. But about eight months later, I get a call from another hotel, in fact, Florida, Naples, Florida. And, and the channel manager said, oh, we have a problem here. There's a guest. Unbelievable. Ten days he's here already. Complaints every morning. And he pinched one of the ladies in the club. I said, oh, Mr. Miller is there. How do you know? His name was not Miller. Well, it was the same guy. So I said, here's what you do. And we did the same thing. And since that time, we never heard from him again. But it exists. It is very rare. The, the problem is it's not possible to delegate that because otherwise, if there is a complaint, your managers will blame the customers every time. <laughs> that doesn't work. Now, for businesses, let's say, as they acquire more and more customers, they at times may believe that they own those customers. But you argue that loyalty is dependent upon continuous performance and that you have to you really keep that customer. What are some of the ways that businesses lose customers? Essentially, where do they go wrong? The simple thing is you take them for granted. That's the simple answer. You have to constantly, in particular today, the customer, when we started with Carlton, Luxury and excellence was your surrounding, marble, chandeliers, and so on. That's not true anymore. Today, excellence to the customer is if you do it their way. Individualization. And that, that is very much the millennium's demand, do it my way. And we better adjust to that. We better be ready to understand it's not about us. It's about them. Understand them. And now you have to understand them as a market as a whole and the individual and allow the individual to individualize the service or the product to their taste. Now, this becomes more difficult because it's not any more standardizing. And, and don't forget, pretty soon they're only millennials who are your customers. And believe me, a very large percentage of them say, do it my way. They want individualization. And as companies, we have to understand that and adjust to that. Listen to them, how they want service to be done. For example, I created another company out after it's called Capella Hotel Company. By the way, Capella Hotel was just one of the best hotel in the world. And I sold the company a year ago. But it was all about individualization. We called every customer before they even come to the hotel and said, when you come here, is there anything special we can do for you? Do you have a diet? Do you have an allergy? Do you want us to make a reservation somewhere? What can we do for you individually? We have no hours of operation, no check-in time, no check-out time. Before dark, you have to check out, but you can check in any time, you keep the room. So it's not anymore, here is what we have. That is a commodity. And of course, that will happen a lot. For instance, hotel business, I believe that most brands that you know today, they will become commodities. They will check in 
on this thing here. They make a reservation on this thing here. They check in on the thing. They call the elevator thing. They check into their room on the thing. They check out. That's a sleeping commodity. But there will be that creates opportunity for hotels with a lot of hospitality, caring, attention to the individual. You have to decide what you want to be. Can you be a commodity? Does it make sense? But understand, even then, more and more, the, the millennials, we have to answer what they want, and they want individualization. Now, I know earlier we talked about the importance of getting the right people into the organization. Um, this comes up you know, with every successful leader I speak with, the importance of people. But if you could speak to how you find the right person for the right role. Yeah, well, but most people just hire. You cannot hire. You have to select. You have to understand the talents that you need in each job category. What's the talent that you really need? What's the talent the person has to have to fulfill a certain job? That's the profile of a job. You, did the, you have to develop a profile for each job category and the talent that's needed, and then hire against that. Then identify what are questions do you have to ask the, the, the applicant? What do you have to ask in order to identify the talents that they have and where they fit? And not just high, you know, I give you a silly example. One, for instance, doorman in a hotel. It has to be somebody who likes the outdoors. I have to identify what is your hobby. If gardening was the hobby, we happen to know, having many, many doormen, that the five best doormen liked gardening. They like to be outside. But if I don't know that, if I don't apply that in my interview, and said, then I may hire somebody who really likes to sit inside in a computer room and I put them outside. That won't work. So I have to be very clear. And there are many other talents needed for this particular job, for, for every job. So I have to develop the questions, I have to develop the talent, I have to develop the questions, the identification to be sure I, I can identify what talent the person has in front of me and hire accordingly. Of course, the next thing is that is a not done by companies is great orientation. The first day of work in most companies goes somewhat like that. You come in, you fill all kind of papers out, and then the boss talks to you and says, we are a team here. Oh, this is a pathetic speech, I'm sorry. We are a team here. Well, what is a team? A team is a group of people who have a common objective and helps each other toward that objective. But we don't tell them the common objective of the organization. The common objective in the case of Ritz-Carlton was our vision. We want to be the best in the world. Now join me in that common objective. And here is what the motive of that objective. The motive is so we grow. Now I have to collect my motive, connect my to the employee's motive. So we grow. So you have opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. You have to give them the objective. And then, and then what else do we do when a new employee starts? Generally, we turn them over to somebody else who knows the ropes. You're not in rope business, but you take Bill, the new employee, and turn them over to Joe, who knows the ropes. And what happens? On the way to the kitchen or whatever they're doing, Joe, the old waiter, tells Bill, the new waiter, this company sucks. 
That's their orientation. And then we have expectations of them. You cannot let that happen. The first day of, a, of an employee's work should be fill out a paper, yes, and then spend time to tell them who you are, what is your heart, your soul as an organization. Invite them to truly join you. We make the mistake by our hiring. We hired them, as I said before, not by profile, by talent. And we hired them not to join us. We hire our employees to fulfill a function. In our case, maybe the cook, maybe the clean rooms, or any one of those functions. But you see, the chair on which you're sitting is fulfilling a function. We should hire people to join who we are, to become part of us, and then explain it before you hire them, and explain again the day when you start working, here's who we are. Here's where we want to go. Here's how that is good for you. Here's our vision, which is good for you and for all concerned. So come in, fulfill your function to the best of your ability. That is done in order to accomplish the purpose that you have, the vision that we have. So we're not given just a job, we're giving purpose. And we know for thousands of years, since Aristotle, if you will, that people need purpose and belonging. So why don't we give it? Now, I know we talk about, let's say, orientation, but you also mentioned in the book that no matter how great and thorough that employee's orientation is, it won't stick without reinforcement. How, how do you continuously reinforce the right habits? Yes, very important. The second day of our orientation, we teach 20 points. We develop those 20 points. There's some very simple steps, but we know in our mind that if we do these 20 things superior to the competition, we will be the best hotel company in the world. That was our opinion. And that's why we developed those 20 points. That's why we teach those 20 points the second day of orientation. And then from there on, we sustain those points by repeating one of those points every day. Now today, it may be point number 11. If you get a complaint, you own it. We discussed the complaint thing earlier. And we explained again how you handle it how, and so on. In 20 days, we discuss it again. Tomorrow is point 12. If a guest asks for a direction, don't point. Take him there. And on the way, explain what's going on in the hotel. Create a relationship. Now, in 20 days, that will be repeated. Mind you, once we instituted that, we learned that all of a sudden, after a few months, the hotels didn't repeat this. So my question was, wait a minute, why wouldn't we repeat it? What wouldn't we repeat the things that will make us the leader in the world? Well, everybody knows it. So my question, I've got all my channel managers together. And the question, so let me see. Who in this room doesn't know what Coca-Cola is? You all know it. Everybody knows it, obviously. You see, I said, Coca-Cola knows that everybody knows what Coca-Cola is. But they still spend billions of advertising because you have to keep it front of mind. Why wouldn't we keep front of mind the things that will make us the leader in the, in, in the world, in this industry? 
And that's when we finally got it. But it was so important to me that when I noticed that sometimes we still didn't do it, and I finally said, if a general manager doesn't do the daily lineup, the daily repeat, I will fire the general manager because I have no right to compromise excellence in this company. I would be going against everybody. While many people believe that leaders are born, not made, Horst disagrees. I asked him to elaborate on this philosophy and how he's used it to inspire excellence amongst his employees. You're not born that necessarily, and it is not if it's style. It's if you pretend that on the left over here, there are all kinds of people. Those are your customers and potential customers. Clients, patients, whatever you call them. Guests, doesn't matter. And on the right, there are a lot of custom people too. Those are your employees. I have to know what my cost potential and customers expect from my product. And then as management, management now creates processes and systems and analysis how to deliver what the customers expect through the employees. Leadership though, creates an environment where the employee wants to do that. So it's essential to have leadership because the employee who wants to do that will do a better job than the employees who has to do it. So that's leadership. But of course, so management cannot be ignored, developing the processes. So a leader is a good manager at the same time. But unfortunately, there are very few managers who are actually good leaders. The first is just the controlling managers who control with controls and, and processes. And this job, job gets done, but it could be done much better if they were also leaders. And you talk about the, the idea of leading yourself before leading others. When it comes to vision or leadership, you, you mentioned that it requires four decisions. Yeah. Aristotle already said that people need purpose. So obviously it starts giving people purpose, a vision to establish a vision. But once you establish the vision again, it has to have to be very clear if this vision is good for everybody, it's good for the investors, good for the customer, it's good for the employee, and it's good for society as a whole. I have to agonize if I establish a vision as the leader, here's where we want to be in 10 years. Is this really good for everybody? And once I have established that, I have to establish what will get me to that point. And, and then I cannot compromise it. I cannot come with excuses. I cannot accept excuses. I have to go there. And I, I can't even compromise with myself. I must be going forward to this point in the future because it is the right thing for all concerned, including myself. And that is leadership, to know that future, to clearly identify it, to clearly articulate it. And I am now responsible to keep focus on it. Everybody else may be focused on something else, but I have to focus on and focus everybody else. And I also cannot make excuses. I have no more right to make excuses. I have no right to say it didn't work out because the weather was bad or because of the economy. The vision shouldn't change. The values shouldn't change. The priorities will change sometimes, but not the vision ever. That has been established. We will be the leader in the world, period. 
Now, I know you mentioned beating this to death, and I actually wouldn't like for you to beat this to death because many organizations will check the box and say, we wrote down our vision statement or our mission statement, or we have our core values, we put them on the wall, and you argue that that's not enough. I mean, we see you know, many organizations that want to check the box, but they're not really living by those values. Yeah. I worked with an organization that had many branches of business. I, I, I consult. I'm not working in hotel business anymore. I do consulting and I'm on a few boards. But so I consulted with a company, which turns out to be a wonderful company. But I first asked, what is your vision? Do you have a vision? Oh, very, very clearly established. Here it is. Early report. Here it's written. It's, it's beautiful and so on. And I've asked, do the employees know it? Oh, everybody knows it. I asked, not exaggerate, at least 100 employees, not one of them knew the vision. It cannot be a secret. It's the reason why people should come to work, not the function. The vision, the function is only there to get to that vision, and that vision gives value to everybody. So, so it's not enough to have it written somewhere. It has to be all over. It has to be in every meeting. The first thing you do, Read the vision statement and maybe your value statements. Every meeting, every meeting, the meeting shouldn't be taking place unless it takes place in order to accomplish the vision. And say, so why are we here for in this meeting? Let me let the vision statement. We want to be the leader in the world in the service business. Now, let's have a meeting. Let's be sure that meeting brings us a little closer, a fraction closer. That's why we have it. Everything should be driven by the objective. Now, I'm, I'm a big believer that you can't manage what you don't measure. It, it seems that you agree. But what are some of the big items that you believe that every business should be measuring within their organization? For me, mind you, I, I had, we had hotels in five continents. By the way, in every continent, in every location where we were, while I was running Ritz-Carlton, we were the absolute leader in the market segment. And when I start Capella, same thing. So with other words, the philosophy works, period. But I couldn't know the details in, in every hotel anymore. That's impossible. So I, I had certain measurements that I want to know basically every day. That's number one, customer satisfaction. How many percent of the customers want to return top bucks? And I had a number, in, in our case in, in, in Ritz-Carlton, if 92% or, or more say in, in a given hotel, I want to come, I'm fine. I don't want to know more. But if it dropped below that, I interceded through the regional vice president, through the general manager. And if it didn't improve, I made it very clear. I move into a hotel and corrected myself. That was the biggest threat you could give that the general manager, I would move into a hotel and run this hotel or her hotel. But the next thing I want to know, number one, customer satisfaction in tender return, period. Number two, employee satisfaction. I want to know. It had to be a certain number. Number three, I want to know the economics of the day, of course, clearly. Number four, I want to know my future indicators. Does the future look better? And we have measurements on that. I could, I could tell next year will be better or next month will be better or whatever. Are the indicators positive up from, from right now? But otherwise, we are improving. So what we also be there, some, if something was negative in this question, we were able to dig deeper because of customer analysis and so on. But I want to know only that. And if, like the customer satisfaction, if it stayed over 92%, loyalty factor, top box, I'm fine. 
But if it slipped, as soon as it slipped, I got in- involved. I have the question, region vice president, look into it. That's all. Look into it. If next month it still was there, well, then the conversation became different. And I wait a minute, what is it here? If then it stayed down, I said, okay, I'm, I'm visiting. And I stay in the hotel until it is fixed. That's my responsibility. And I'm doing it not for me, for all concerned. And for those that are listening to the podcast, I, I think at the core of all this is the belief that money follows excellence and, and not the other way around. Yeah, very definitely. And, and it, it's fascinating. As I said, I'm on a number of boards and they're fine companies. Uh, but usually on the board, what, what, what discussions do you have? It's all around financing, cash flow, cash that, and money, loan. Wait a minute. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about what makes money. What creates the money? That's what I want to talk about. It's, it's too late to talk about the, the bottom line. I want to talk about what creates the bottom line. I want to talk about it. And it's service. It's attention. It's loyal customers that create money. There are four things you do in an organization. Number one, keep the customer. Number two, find new ones. Number three, get as much money as you can from the customers. Uh-uh without losing them. And number four, work on your efficiencies. You should try that you give the best product in the world for less money than the competition spends. That's what you work on. That's why you work on continuous improvement, elimination of defects, all those things you work on. But the key that drives you is keep the customers that you have. Once in a Capella Hotel, every employee, if you would have would walk into a Capella Hotel still today, and you walk in the kitchen over there in the corner to the guy that washes the pots. And you ask them, what is your objective here? He will answer you, my objective is to make sure the customer comes back because of what I'm doing. Every employee knew they're here to convince the guests to want to come back and do everything excellently. So the customer wants to come back. That's where the money is. It's not a talk about that constant money. And, and then cost cutting. Efficiency doesn't mean anything anymore. They cut costs. Throw a few people out. Don't paint. Take the flowers away. Long term, that doesn't work. And Horace, if I may ask you a personal question. So obviously you're a very high achieving person. What are some of the, the habits that you practice daily that keep you on track and engaged and effective? I concentrate, first of all, and say, I got to work for excellence. No matter where I work, but if I consult, whatever I do, I am not going there to fulfill a function. I go there to create excellence, what I'm doing. But then question yourself, am I doing it? And this continuous improvement of myself. Let's face it, what is excellence? Let's talk about it for a moment. Well, in a thing, take this thing here. If it functions well for which it was created, anything, that is excellence. What about in a person? Me, excellence is if I do my very best in my functioning. Number two, if I do my very best in my relationship. Number three, if I do my very best morally, and to me personally, that's a personal thing, if I do my very best spiritually. Okay, how I take those things and improve them? That's an important thing I do. I I question myself after function at least once every few weeks. I should do it every day. Could I have done 
my function better than I did it. How could I have done it better? That is seeking continuous improvement. In my relationship, how could I have done that better? Once I meet with somebody and go away and say, how could I have done that better? That's how you improve. More or less, and everything is the same thing. So I'm very conscious and I demand from my managers once every four weeks, in many cases, what have you done the last four weeks that improves you? What, have you, what mistakes have you eliminated? Where have you stepped up? And you have to do that with yourself. That is leading yourself, of course. You have to have a vision for yourself. And then question yourself, if I would be able, and forget it, because I go right on, every day to say, how could I function better today? Wow, I would be really excellent after a while. The same thing in relationship. In relationship, you must do that. Just an example. When you take an order, from the guest, they're sitting there taking order. That's your moment of relationship. If you step away and say, how could I have done my relationship better? How could I have gotten better into them? How could I have looked them better in the eye? How could I have said, oh, that's a very good choice. Thank you very much. Great relationship. How could I have done better? Pretty soon you would be the best waiter in the world. That is what I really believed in. And then read the right stuff, read the right books, read the right thinking and, and get information. Be careful, be careful in today's world. I'm very worried about that, that my opinion may not be my own. I may have gotten it from opinion makers out there. Be sure that you don't get one-sided today in today's, I mean, I, I read, Every morning, two papers, one that leaves, leads left and one that leads right. So that I don't, so I still can make my own mind and so on. Those things are very important to me. I want to still think for myself and not be falling into the rut of, of listening to other people and have other people's opinion in my mind. I think that for a leader, that's very important that I step back and think read the right books. And Horst, as we come to a close, this being the, the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer is to understand, to, to recognize what is going on in the world and adjust. Just be able to change and not be in, in it, it's not your opinion. To learn, it's not my opinion. It's not my opinion. It's the customer's opinion that counts. That has been a, a major game changer for me. A game changer for me was to, to learn what excellence is, to understand what excellence is at all. Those moments are game changers. The game changers all came from other people, to listen to the right people, the right influences, and not just to the trend of the world. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with our guest, Horst Schultze, and have gained new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691, and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. 
For more information on our interview with Horst Schultze, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh